Blog Talk Radio. And gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight is no exception as we talk about the voices behind the wall and the horror stories that are there. This is AJC Radio. We take off right now. And I'm Lamont Banks, along with Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt, William Williams, and the entire AJC radio team as we begin to deal with some issues that are troubling, that are very concerning to us in this nation. And it is the abuse behind the wall in prisons and jails all across this country. And uh, we're going to get into that discussion. Folks, feel free to dial in the 646-200-0628. That's 646 200 0628. William, give us your thoughts as we can again continue and get ready to take off on this journey. You know, this is, um, it's amazing when you sit here and you look and listen to these sounds and, and hear these, these experiences, excuse me, 
that we're um, we're being told the stories of what's going on behind bars. It's amazing, and the country continues to just you know turn a blind eye to it. And this stuff has been going on for quite some time. I mean, stories upon stories of people, prisoners being abused, uh, the the officers there with this god complex, you know, that are abusing these prisoners. It's it's amazing, and we as a country, we really need to wake up. We really need to understand that as a country, we we are leading here in imprisonment of people. This is a sad, sad thing. We lead in everything, but this is something we should not lead in. And when you talk about not only are we putting this this mass incarceration is going on, but we're also seeing that. While there, there is no rehabilitation. There is no concept of rehabilitation. It's only abuse and more abuse. And even in your own experiences, Lamont, when you you were saying, when you shared with us that you went from one facility to another, you know, the experiences of that, the what you saw, the abuse, the the I guess the overburdening of, by these um by these officers, right? You know, and and this behavior that just is constantly oppressive. It's amazing that we as a country don't wake up to this and say, you know what, this needs to change. We really need to change how we uh, change the system. Excuse me. And that's, that's no, my thought. No, absolutely right. And this is something that continues to be an issue in this nation. We're going to be joined here later. You heard last week we uh, shared with you about Sergeant Brown, James Brown of Fort Bliss, uh, who basically voluntarily checked himself in to the county jail the evening of July 13, 2012, reported to serve basically two days of a sentence, but he died and was, in my opinion, from what we saw, really murdered uh, by that staff there at that, uh, at that county jail. We're going to be joined by his mother tonight. Danetta Robinson will be joining us on this program, along with a young lady by the name of Kathy Morse, who I had the opportunity to talk to. Uh, and I'll tell you what, folks, this young lady has actually... Uh, was an inmate at Rikers. Uh, she's going to be joining us doing this program as well, as well as a young lady who responded on Facebook uh, on Monday as we begin to put this information out. Francis Sanchez will be joining us here at the bottom of the hour, uh, a former jailer who worked actually at the Mid, uh, Midland County Sheriff's Department uh, in 2017. Uh, she's also been a for- former correctional officer. Uh, her husband right now is in the hole. They call it the shoe. Uh, and I'm telling you, putting her through a lot of things. She's going to be sharing her story with us as well. Folks, again, feel free to dial in to 646-200-0628. That's 646-200-0628 as we begin to get into this conversation. And uh, I'll tell you what, uh, call your friends, call your neighbors, anybody you can to get involved with this situation. I'll tell you what, our voices cannot remain silent. I said it before, I'll say it again. You don't have the right to remain silent when injustice continues to go down the road that it goes. Dennis, your thoughts as we talk about some of the most horrific stories, the horrific, again, this is not a fairy tale. This is happening in prisons as we speak. And uh, it was said to me last week, and it was very true. When we lay down at night to go to sleep, someone is dying in a federal prison, in in a county jail, in a state prison somewhere in this country. Uh, and that is why the importance of getting the, the word out and becoming the voices of the voiceless is so critically important. Your thoughts? And, and again, that's why it's very important. Uh, first of all, we have to uh, think about it. It's kind of sad to say, but a lot of times uh, people don't get involved uh, until a loved one has been incarcerated 
and then they find out what's actually happening behind the walls. But uh, what we're trying to do with this show is trying to show you uh, what's going on behind the walls uh, before your loved one get there, because there's a very large chance, a very great chance uh, that someone in your family uh, uh, could be uh, incarcerated. And I tell you, it's so easy uh, to put someone in prison, but very difficult to get them out. So right. what we're trying to do is make sure people understand. I mean, you got to get out there. You got to start voting. Uh, you know, these attorneys, these prosecutors, uh, these judges. I mean, if you don't get involved, uh, the prison system will never change. Absolutely. On the other side of the break, folks, we're coming back. Voices from behind the wall. The horror stories continue. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855 529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. Say goodbye to affordability and say hello to losing control. Discover Price Gougesol, the latest outrageously expensive drug from Big Pharma. It's impossible to afford and reverses the ability to pay other bills. Because drug companies raise prices to pay for commercials like this one, side effects may include overdrawn bank accounts, bad credit scores, higher health care costs, children who don't get Christmas presents, and in some cases, the need to stop taking your medicine. If you experience any of these side effects, contact your financial advisor right away. Out-of-control drug costs are no joke. Yet nine of the 10 biggest pharma companies spend more on advertising than research and development. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit csrxp.org. Mass incarceration means that we've got a very high rate of incarceration, historically, comparatively. And the other thing is the rate of incarceration is so high, so socially concentrated, we're no longer incarcerating the individual, but we're incarcerating whole social groups. The rate of incarceration now is about five times higher than it was historically. Historically, it was 100 per 100,000. Now it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do. We've seen extremely high rates of exposure to the criminal justice system for African-American men with very low levels of schooling. So if we think about black men who were born in the late 1970s and who were growing up through the American prison boom of the 1980s and the 1990s, the chances that they're going to serve time in state or federal prison if they dropped out of high school is about 70%. So going to prison for that group of black men with very low levels of schooling 
that's become a normal life event. That's really only happened in the last 10 years. We're at this point now where there's about 1.2 million African-American children with a parent who's incarcerated. That's about one in nine. The research shows the kids who experience parental incarceration have diminished school achievement, they have behavioural problems, depressive symptoms, acting out. And there's also evidence that these kinds of negative effects associated with parental incarceration are concentrated more among boys than among girls. And there's a very real risk here that incarceration becomes an inherited trait. The underlying issue is we've chosen prison as a way to respond to that problem of crime. And there are a whole variety of ways that we could have chosen to respond to that problem of crime. We've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty. And we've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty for a historically aggrieved group whose liberty in the United States was never firmly established to begin with. I wanted to be in the military since I was, since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You gotta find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio as we search for the meaning and the purpose to bring justice all around the world tonight. And I'll tell you what, there's some injustice and some things going on behind the wall of America's prisons and jails that we feel compelled to get out to the American people and to all of our listeners around the United States and around the world. Thank you for joining us tonight. And I'll tell you what, folks, these these discussions are troubling at best as we try to find a way to find out why the inhumane treatment of inmates across this country are beyond cruel and unusual punishment. I don't even think we have an adjective yet that would describe this type of horror, terror to our citizens that happen to be incarcerated in this country. Some uh, that were convicted, some that were wrongfully convicted, some that were not convicted at all, that are dying in custody of county jails. And that one person we talked about before earlier tonight, Sergeant James Brown of Fort Bliss, a veteran, a decorated officer, a decorated uh, uh, veteran that did some things good for this country and was horrifically killed in the custody uh, in county jail. Right now, joining us to discuss a little bit of this, uh, we are honored and privileged uh, and very, very uh, empathetic to Danetta Robinson Scott, the mother of Sergeant James Brown. And Danetta, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Are you with us? Yes. Thank you so much for being here and part of this program, Danetta. And uh, how have you been doing so far? Uh, it's a day-by-day process, but I'm, thank God I'm, I'm hanging in there. Okay. And our prayers and thoughts are with you and your family and all that has occurred. Right now, Danetta, I'm going to play a news clip that actually speaks to the uh, situation where your son's concerned. Is just, I think it's the clip that uh, you had passed on to, to uh, – uh, our, our scheduler, uh, we're going to play that real quick. We're going to come back and we're going to get into discussion uh, about, about your son, okay? Bear with us here as we play okay. this. All right. The video of Fort Bliss Sergeant James Brown's death in the El Paso County Jail is going worldwide. Good evening, I'm Erica Castillo. And I'm John Purvis, first on Fox tonight. One week ago, we showed you the jailhouse video of Sergeant Brown's final hours. And the story has now moved far beyond the borderland. News outlets and websites around the world are picking up the story. The Washington Times and the Huffington Post here in the U.S. have been joined by the Daily Mail in Britain and other international websites in telling his story. Hundreds of people around the world have commented on the video as well. And tonight, a former El Paso County Jail Corrections officer speaks up to say Sergeant Brown's death did not have to happen. Erica continues her coverage of this story that you'll see only on KFOX. Fort Bliss is one of the largest military installations in the country. There are about 30,000 active duty soldiers stationed here at any given time. So you may be surprised that when active duty soldiers get in trouble in the civilian world and end up in the El Paso County Jail, there is no one there from the military to check on them. A former corrections officer at El Paso County's jail who has asked for anonymity tells us why he believes that can have deadly consequences. Sergeant James Brown self-reported to the El Paso County Jail for a weekend DWI sentence in July 2012. Documents show Sergeant Brown informed the jail upon arrival that he was diagnosed with PTSD. He was a decorated two-time combat veteran in Iraq. 
Initially, Sergeant Brown was placed in the general population, and it appears he was not coping well. We traveled to Lubbock to interview a then-inmate who on that day in July 2012, we verified, was in the El Paso County jail cell with James Brown. He claims the inmates were all growing frustrated before Brown was removed. They really weren't feeding you. You know, I think they gave us one sandwich for the whole day, a sandwich and a carton of milk. So some guys were pretty, you know, heated. That guy, James Brown, he was there. He was actually about to get released pushed the door, but it was already locked, so he couldn't open it. He pushed the door, and he cussed, and, he, you know, he, I don't want to say the words that he said, but he cussed at him, and he turned around and walked to the back and just kicked back against the wall. Well, they came in, like three, I think it was three or four of them that opened the door, and they came in, and they grabbed him. At that time, Brown was placed in a cell by himself. He threw wads of wet toilet paper at the door, somehow caused himself to bleed, and then refused to speak. As far as inmates with PTSD and, and problems of that sort, they're just regular inmates. A former corrections officer at the El Paso County Jail tells KFOX 14 soldiers are never separated from the general population, even when the jail has knowledge they are diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. The protocol is the same. Um, when I was still in the department, uh, everything was the same. Inmates were inmates, whether they were in the military or the only exception was for some law enforcement where they can't be where other inmates are at. After viewing the entire raw video of Sergeant Brown's encounter, he believes Brown being in the general population was not where the issue began. It was here. To have told the inmate that we were going to send somebody in there when the inmate was in reality already calm, he was resting or sleeping. I couldn't see him, what he was doing, but he wasn't yelling or kicking the door. It wasn't until he was threatened with, with violence to give, give himself up that he reacted. What followed was the extraction team storming his cell and Brown immediately stating he was struggling to breathe. Eventually, his limp body was hoisted up and carried to the infirmary, where Brown was sedated twice by injection and begged for water before collapsing and becoming unresponsive. Shockingly, all pretty standard procedure, according to our source, except for one thing. The reaction of the supervisors on scene should have prompted them to take over the situation and call 911. You just stayed in the same position where they left them, and that's that's a big red flag. Sadly, though, our source says he is not surprised. He says there is no training at the jail for corrections officers or the extraction team on how to deal with soldiers, much less soldiers diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. He claims they barely get any training of any sort at all. They don't get to practice as much. They practice maybe once a week, two, twice, if they're lucky. Um, and they have to do it, you know, after, after the shift. He also says there is no psychiatrist and no official military presence at the jail in the event an active duty soldier is incarcerated, something he believes in this case could have made a difference. In the event that they do have somebody there, it would have to be somebody with uh, rank of an officer to be able to control whoever it is that's there. Uh, that would uh, create less problems.
Fort Bliss, however, disagrees with that assessment. Lieutenant Colonel Lee Peters, who speaks on behalf of Fort Bliss, says that the post does not assign a military liaison to the jail because the percentage of soldiers arrested in El Paso comprises only 1% of the entire number of people arrested in El Paso County each year. Instead, Fort Bliss relies on the El Paso County Jail to inform the post when a detained soldier has been arrested and booked solely for the purpose of reporting procedures. It is unknown if James Brown ever told anyone when he arrived at the jail that he was an active duty soldier. However, it is documented in jail records he informed them of his post-traumatic stress. It's no secret military personnel with post-traumatic stress often experience a host of phobias and at times can react to those situations violently. Besides potential psychological triggers, there may be other issues at stake when a soldier is incarcerated in a civilian jail, given soldiers are considered property of the U.S. federal government. Fort Bliss, however, says it's a matter of jurisdiction. But this former jail guard, who worked for years on the extraction team, says it is a unique problem to cities with military installations that local jails need to address. That hasn't happened yet, and I wish it would. Being a uh, combat disabled veteran myself, I can relate to, to Mr. Brown's uh, problem. So that's why I, I decided to vent what I feel. And I think that if the Army personnel or any military personnel comes in and they claim to PT, have PTSD, they should be uh, afforded the opportunity to, to stay separate from everybody because just like law enforcement, you know, they, they serve the community and serve the country and as such, they should be treated as such. We're waiting to hear from the El Paso County Jail and the Sheriff about the protocols there and the training, as well as exactly how many soldiers have been incarcerated there in the last three years, how often there is a psychiatrist available at the jail, and what purpose it serves to have soldiers declare they're diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. Well, there you have it. Sergeant James Brown, really a hero, a soldier of integrity, one that fought for this country and the freedoms in which we share uh, for this type of response, Donetta, um, and what happened to him simply is unjust. Um, I know you are a voice for Sergeant Brown, uh, and you're getting the message out there. Tell our listeners a little bit about what you're doing to bring awareness to folks of the injustice your son suffered. Um. Initially, we started a page on Facebook just uh, alerting people of what happened uh, to my son. Uh, in the recent years, that attention um, has not been as wide known as I would like it to be just because a lot of people were not aware of what had, ha- what had happened to him. Uh, there are still soldiers that are at Fort Bliss or that were at Fort Bliss that were not aware of what happened to him because at the time of the incident, they put a gag order uh, on those on that base. So it's been difficult trying to get the word out there still. And not only that, because I am his mother, I really don't have a voice because he was married. So all those rights go to his wife. Um, I still 
you know, tell his story to veterans or to whomever uh, will listen. Um, I uh, stay in contact with the uh, representatives here in the state of, state of Washington trying to get some type of awareness or some change uh, as far as the jails go in El Paso so that I can somehow, you know, do exactly what that officer was saying, um, get some training for those officers or at least get the military to take responsibility for their soldiers and not give jurisdiction to the county jail. No, absolutely right. And, and, and Danetta, we salute you for what you're doing with that. Uh, I'll tell you what we're going to do at a just cause for you. Uh, we're going to partner with you to get the word out even more about Sergeant Brown. We believe he deserves honor. Uh, we have a veteran here uh, who served in the military. Dennis, when you hear Danetta's story, you hear Sergeant Brown. Uh, our position is to really uh, go to Washington, talk to the people of Veteran Affairs, talk to the people on who address veteran issues on Capitol Hill to say, look, this is a problem. And Danetta, I'll tell you, that trip will be coming up, uh, coming up, is forthcoming, and we're going to do our very best to take your story to Capitol Hill as we talk to members on the Hill about this injustice. Dennis, give Danetta your thoughts as what you, what you hear. I know you, you appreciate and honor those that wear the uniform. What are your thoughts here as we deal with Sergeant Brown? Uh, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, uh, when you look at the whole situation, uh, first of all, I think that the uh, local police should have uh, alerted the uh, uh, command uh, that, you know, this individual had been incarcerated. Uh, leaders, I mean, it all depends on you, your leaders, too. I mean, because I know at uh, Fort Carson, if we found out a soldier was uh, incarcerated, their, their NCOs, their, those personnel that was in charge would go out. And, and find out what's going on. I mean, you know, get the real scoop uh, because, you know, we have to update the blotter report and all this good stuff. But uh, not saying that Fort Bliss fell. Uh, I'm just saying that uh, that that El Paso County Police uh, should have made sure that uh, they, 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 they alerted the post that that had happened. And again, when we talk about PTSD, I mean, it, it's so huge. And, and if he did tell someone, I mean, come on. Uh, and I believe he did. Uh, and if he told someone, the, the actions should have been a lot different because they know at any time anything can, can, can make that individual go off or, or you know, think he's threatened or, or whatever because he's been threatened uh, during wartime, and that, that's what bought him there. But it's just sad that, you know, that that took place. And, and, and I can't imagine how you feel, uh, but it's just sad that no one – uh, no one's, you know, actually saying, okay, yeah, we made a mistake until we say uh, something was somebody did something wrong, accept it. I mean, go on, accept it. That's when you can fix it. Well, it went viral. This situation with Sergeant Brown went completely viral on the Internet because people saw this soldier. Uh, does America treat its own? Come on. Like this. Exactly. This man wasn't a, a killer. Wasn't a a violent man? The hero. Wow. He goes in and say, "Look, let's pay the fine. Let's get this done, as anybody would. Look, I'm gonna be here a couple of days. And I'm going home." What are you killing this man? Danetta, uh, let me ask you a question. Have you reached out to local representatives uh, in Texas in regards to this, and what has their response been if you have done that? 
um, they told me that I needed to contact my local Congress or local representatives, which is um, Denny Heck and Patty Murray, and I have reached out to them, and they've done the uh, inquiries, and uh, the Army just keeps saying that, you know, El Paso had jurisdiction, and I'm telling them I don't want to know who had jurisdiction. What I want to know is why the why the army allowed this to happen to their soldier? I mean, they knew he was active duty because the MPs contacted the uh, contacted they contacted the MPs after it happened. So they knew he was active duty. And and this is my thoughts, Donetta. If I'm active duty. And I wear the uniform as a soldier. That's jurisdiction. And especially for something as simple as a uh, DWI or DUI, that's simple. And back in the day, my dad was military for 20 and a half years. Uh, there was a lot, they used to call the military a lot quicker uh, when there was an issue. Mm-hmm. A lot of reports. Absolutely. It is. I mean, it goes in there immediately. I mean, if you get a DUI the next morning, your first sergeant is aware that he had Something a soldier last night. They got a DUI. So, again, where's the disconnect? I don't Absolutely. know. Uh, Fort Bliss should have uh, got, got informed, and they should have responded. Uh, again, this, is, this this new stuff. You know, soldiers are, you know, we, we're supposed to, as leaders, take care of our soldiers. So when we find out something like that, a visit is in order. No, oh, absolutely. And Donetta, did did, did uh, Fort Bliss take any responsibility, or they simply kept referring back to local? Um, let me just make a, a slight correction. So sure. he, uh, Fort Bliss, was aware that he was incarcerated, and this was a process. Uh, so he actually got the DWI in November of 2011 and wasn't sentenced until July of 2012. Uh-oh. So his okay. post knew that he mm-hmm. was self-reporting to El Paso okay. County Jail. And okay. at the time of this, the general at the base made the comment to me, we are very angered by what has happened this was wrong, and we will investigate, and we will take care of this, but nothing has been done. Nothing. I've never heard from that man again. What's the general's name? Uh, the general, um, oh my goodness, at that, right now, I believe the general's name is Tilly, but the general at that time, I would have to look it up and get back to you. Okay. Um, with that information. And what we're going to do, uh, Donetta, we're going to contact that general. We're going to contact the current general. Mm-hmm. I promise you, a just cause is committed to finding justice for your son. And if someone failed to act, uh, it costs somebody their life. Uh, we intend to get involved with that. And please understand, I want you to, I want to see that a just cause radio will do everything we can. Uh, to investigate investigation, uh, and try to get some answers for you, and somebody needs to be held accountable. That's the bottom line. So we're going to, to do that. 
And I appreciate that. Um, I totally appreciate that. I mean, just to hear somebody say that they, you know, want to be involved and that they're stepping up to the plate to help take action um, from the bottom of my heart is is appreciated because that's where um, I'm hitting a brick wall. You don't have those people that are willing to step up and take that type of responsibility or want to participate in making the military be held accountable for their soldiers and making changes as far as the state laws go in Texas. Absolutely. And we've been talking a lot about Texas here the last few weeks. A lot of things going on down there in Texas that members of Congress need to be made aware of. Uh, and I'll tell you what, the fe- when you go to Congress or Capitol Hill, it seems to send an effect to the local law enforcement, to the governor. Uh, everything trickles down from Washington, D.C. So we're going to do our best to do whatever steps we have to take uh, to bring justice and I know we can't we can't return your son to you. If I could, I would do it today. But what we can do as an advocacy organization is fight for justice and fight for the injustice that continues day after day. And the sad part of this story is that not only did Sergeant Brown suffer a huge injustice, and what you've suffered as his mother and the family is unacceptable. And you said it's for somebody to step up. We need to step up. These are the lives of yes. people. These are our sons, our daughters, our sisters, our brothers. What do we do? Do we just let this type of horror and terror continue in the lives of our, uh, of our, of our, of our citizens and, God forbid, our soldiers? And they said your son was a decorated soldier. He did his job, and he right. did it well. And uh, I commend you on your courage and what, for coming on this program tonight, Janetta, and it's got to be difficult to talk about. I'm sure it is. But I appreciate your courage tonight in coming on this show. If you had something to say to our listeners out there tonight in regards, I'm sure this, the whole system, criminal justice system in your mind has shifted drastically. What would you say to our listeners? I don't know how we optimistically tell them it's going to get better other than we need to inform and educate and let people know what to take and what not to take. And we're not going to take this. What would you say to those folks who are dealing with similar situations that you have gone through with the loss of your son? Uh, don't stop. You keep fighting for justice. You keep uh, speaking and making your voice be heard uh, in the littlest don't give up. Uh, continue to fight for what's right. Because when those people have been lost, they've been lost in vain if we don't do anything about it. And I refuse to let my son's death be in vain. And we as a people have to come together and fight for what's right and make these changes come about. Oh, absolutely. Donetta couldn't, couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, let, let me tell you right now, you have a partner and a friend in AJC Radio and a Just Cause organization. I will be in touch with you offline I will get the information we need. I will forward and email you any information that we send out as that Just Cause launches our internal investigation for immediate action, not only from our organization, but from members on Capitol Hill. We plan for that journey. And your husband as a decorated, I mean, not your husband, your son, excuse me, as a decorated soldier who lost his life in vain 
if we don't speak up and if they don't act. We're going to bring that definitely to our, to our legislative uh, members there on Capitol Hill. And I appreciate you so very much for the courage you've shown tonight telling this story. We appreciate that. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me once again. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We'll be in touch with this, uh, with this uh, initiative to, to bring justice to your, uh, okay. to your son. All right. Thanks okay, for joining. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Have a good night. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Danetta Robinson Scott, the mother of Sergeant James Brown. Uh, Dennis, I'll ask you this. This situation starts at the top. Uh, we have a general that contacted, that spoke with the mother of this man and went missing in action. Never showed up to do anything. That, you, that's just the way it is. We must hold these folks accountable. Why didn't you return the call, General? I agree. I mean, but that shows you uh, leadership. Uh, uh, again, I stressed how important it is that uh, uh, leaders take care of their soldiers. I mean, uh, we, we don't want to lose nobody, uh, not just in battle, uh, but even in, you know, in, in peacetime. But when you got uh, the highest of highs at the highest level, taking something like that and, and just throwing it aside, uh, that tells you the culture. Uh, usually the general represents the culture of that, that, that installation. So if that yep. general uh, don't think it's, it's important, believe me, that captain, that lieutenant colonel, that colonel, that staff sergeant, uh, they probably feel the same way. Well, we're going to be contacting, uh, it looks like, uh, former General Dana Pittard, who was the acting general in 2013, uh, the gentleman that uh, apparently spoke to uh, to Danetta Robinson Scott, uh, if you're listening tonight, General, we'll be in touch with you as an organization to find out why. And that's the question we want to ask. Current uh, Commander Major General Patrick Matlock, we'll be contacting him as well. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, no matter who's at the post, someone has to be held accountable, and we're going to definitely hold those folks accountable. This is a soldier that died 26, did I read that right? 26 years old? Did I read that right? 26 years of age of Fort Bliss. Yes, he's 26. 26. And that's, that's just not going to get it. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, folks. Coming back to join us, Francis Sanchez. I'll tell you what, this lady has a story to tell. And uh, we connected on Facebook, and she reached out. A former correctional officer and also worked at Midland County Sheriff's Department. Her husband is being targeted. Solitary confinement without cause. We're going to hear her story on the other side of the break. This is AJC Radio, voices from behind the wall. We cannot remain silent. We'll be right back. You're on your way to meet up with friends, but you can't seem to get anywhere quickly. You don't want your friends to be annoyed, so you text. You're on your way. Five seconds is the average time your eyes are off the road while texting while driving. Make sure you get where you're going. Do you have a big brother? Well, I have a big brother, and I'm pretty sure that you and I experienced some of the same things with a big brother. Big brothers will always be big brothers, right? 
I'm sure you'll agree. Well, my brother gets up in the morning. He takes a shower, heads to work, and at some point during the day, he's going to exercise and get that workout, as we all do. And, of course, depending on what's going on, he's going to sit down for two or three meals during the course of his day. And also, depending on what else is going on, he'll probably get caught up on current events and maybe take a few moments to turn a page in a book. How about your big brother? Some of the same stuff, right? Oh, did I mention that my big brother does all of that stuff, but he actually has to have permission a lot of times before he can do it. You see, my big brother was wrongfully convicted of a crime that he did not commit. That's right. That may sound shocking, huh? He's in prison. Wrongful convictions impact families in ways you cannot begin to imagine. But I've decided that I'm going to do something about it. And I extend an invitation to you to come on board and join me in this fight. You see, I'm helping to be a voice for my big brother and others who have been wrongfully convicted. We'd like you to take a few moments today and call a just cause where we fight for justice. You can call us toll free at 1-855-529-4252. That's 1-855-529-4252. Join with us as we fight for justice and for all big brothers across the land. You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. You can't find a fighter. Ladies and gentlemen of America, we find ourselves in a difficult situation trying to find answers where there are no answers to immediately other than a complete change of culture. We're talking about the senseless killings, abuses that are happening in federal and state prisons and jails across this country. And there comes a moment where we must continue to rise up and say we will not tolerate this type of abuse any longer. We think of Sergeant James Brown, who senselessly was murdered by local officials in that county jail. There's no other way to put it. We talk about a lot of people, and Sergeant Brown was one of many, but he was a decorated soldier that went in for a two-day stint in county jail and left in a casket two days later senselessly. We rise up tonight as AJC and a Just Cause organization speaks and become the voices of those that have become voiceless behind the wall. We address those issues tonight. Joining us right now, Francis Sanchez and Natalie, we're going to be coming to you shortly. We always value your your, uh, 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 position, if you will, on these issues. We're going to come to you shortly as well. But right now, let's bring Francis Sanchez in, a, a young lady I had the privilege of talking to, and she has a story to tell, and I'll tell you what. Uh, her voice is being heard. Francis, are you there? I'm here. Francis, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I apologize for the delay tonight. 
as we have been addressing these issues with the mother of Sergeant James Brown. Uh, but thanks for your patience tonight. And I'd like you to introduce yourself to our, to our listeners, if you can. And we're going to hear your story of what's going on, your experience, what you've seen, and a little bit about what you've shared with me uh, a couple of days ago. Let's, let's introduce you now and introduce yourself to our listeners, and we'll go from there and get into this discussion. Okay. Um, well, um, me and my husband, we've been together on and off again for about 26 years. And he's serving a 110-month sentence. Um, I cannot say that he's innocent, but he's serving his time. Mm-hmm. And we've just picked up all of the extra. His punishment should be to be there, and yet he's being harassed. Mm-hmm. And in about 2016, I came out to Big Spring, Texas, because my husband was assigned to the Big Spring SCI camp and I came out here to be close to him I used to believe in law enforcement and I took a job in Midland County which is about 30-45 minutes away and you know when you're young you're taught to look up to law enforcement but I mean as as I've observed what's going on with him at the camp and nobody takes accountability for their actions and as I observed what I observed as I was on the job from roughly about September of 2017 to April of 2018 when I was forced to resign, when they found out that my husband was a federal inmate. Um, and they've lied to cover it up as they do many things that they do, as y'all were discussing in the previous call, and that really breaks my heart because I know these are things that actually happen. Um, my husband right now, he is in the SHU, which is special housing. He's been back there. This is the second time he's been back there since March. The first time he was sent back there for allegedly facilitating an escape, which at that time they sent the U.S. Marshals out to my job at the Midland County Sheriff's Department, where I was also alleged as a facilitator and questioned, which, of course, at the time I more than cooperated. And he was cleared three weeks later because, of course, we did not have anything to do with it. And they also lied during my interrogation. And as I began to bring up some facts, they kind of withdrew from the interrogation. And like I said, he was cleared and released back into the camp three weeks later. Um, And... Again, about June 22nd, he was put back into the shoe, and we were told that it was pending an investigation. He wasn't given an, he wasn't given a reason, and he was taken back with eight others. I contacted the BOP regional office, and I, you know, I kind of mentioned there not being a reason. This was the second time they've done this, and me losing my career the first time should have been enough that it was turning into a harassment case. And I kind of feel like because I did make a complaint the first time that it was turning into harassment. Because he's mm-hmm. always told me not to complain. It's it's scary when you have to be afraid to make a complaint because you fear for retaliation, but you know these things happen. I know Absolutely. they happen. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I've seen it with my own eyes. 
And that's why I'm so adamant about wanting to go to every visitation. I'm there. uh, I've been there every Saturday, every Sunday, every holiday for two years with the exception of lockdowns. Mm -hmm. And when I contacted the BOP, I finally got a response saying that he was under investigation. And when the investigation was over, if there was no finding, he would be released back into general population. The investigation's been over since for for a couple of weeks now. And they put him in, recommended him for transfer to a low. And actually that his status be changed from camp status to low. And there has been no finding. So he's been recommended for transfer without finding, and he's still being held in special housing. But yet he's been moved to a janitor, and he's working from about 8 o'clock in the morning to 9.30 at night. And I'm not understanding if he's such a threat to security, how he can be working back there. I was denied my visit on Sunday. And this is what caught my eye, actually. This is how I became connected with you on Facebook. Because as I was denied that visit on Sunday, when I went in, they I was told I could not visit because the special housing area was over capacity. And they had inmates temporarily housed in the visitation area where the monitor is, because that's all I get is right now monitor visit. And one of the guards suggestedly laughed, and he said, well, maybe we can put them in cages, standing cages. Now, whether they were going to do that or not, I didn't need to have that picture painted for me. And when I saw the cages on your Facebook post, I was like, these must be the cages they're talking about. Well, That is so inhumane to even make that reference in front of family or to even make the reference at all. That's so inhumane. Well, and it sends me into a panic. mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, So he's a your husband is a porter. They call it in uh, in in jail or 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 prison. He's a he's a unit porter, which is janitorial work. He cleans up. Usually, there's privileges included with that. Uh, But you're saying they are trying to transfer him. Now, if he's at camp level, is low a, a progressive or a regressive move? That's regressive. Regressive. It? it is. So they want to take him from from basically camp to in the state level they call it uh, an MR, uh, which is a next level, uh, which is still privileged. But if if he's in a camp, camp is supposed to be the lowest level of security that you have um yes because he is a he's a non-violent offender non-violent but they're trying to regress him is what you're saying right. without any finding of wrongdoing correct what is the case number case manager's name all i know is they call her mrs v i don't know her full name and all what i do know is that she is supposed to aid in finding programs and they're in helping their rehabilitation, mm-hmm. but she's made it harder for him. She has not helped at all, and she has been biased, and he has not felt like he could go to her for anything. And this is and she was more than happy to deliver. Yes, 
she was more than yeah. happy to deliver the news that she recommended him for transfer and for that recommendation of going from the camp to low. All right. This is what, and I, and I told you this yesterday, or the other day, Francis, when I spoke with you, this is what a just cause is going to do. We're going to send a letter to the actual prison camp uh, on behalf of your husband from a just cause, uh, because if there's no finding, he should not be being regressed. He shouldn't. And for the, our listeners right. out there that don't want, that do not know what the shoe is, it is the hole. It is solitary confinement. Uh, they call it special housing, and in special housing, uh, they need to lose that title. This is a a horrific place in any penitentiary, uh, any prison, whether it's state or federal prison. Uh, and what they what they're doing to Francis, as far as her as the wife of this inmate, um, I think Francis, you told me you have some children. Uh, as well, is that correct? We do. We have um, well, we actually have two biological children, and we have a family of five. And okay. right now, it's it's putting a financial strain on the family because I'm going to move with him. I mean, I and our family is going to be split up if it, if he's transferred. And you know, we get a lot of comments on that. You know, even from the guards, they mock me. You know, why are you first in line, you know? And they, they seem to think that's funny. Wow. But I'm going to do well, what it takes to keep my family together. And, no, again, I, like I said, I have no idea even where they're going to transfer him. I mean, is it going to be within the 500 miles or is it going to be over? And he also has medical needs that are not being taken care of. He he had radiation therapy for Graves' disease and uh I guess a lump that they found on his in his throat, like a while he's been in the shoe this mm-hmm. past month, and he still has not been put on thyroid medication. So they're refusing and medical care as well. Well, they're giving him medical care, but it's just not the medical care that he needs. Exactly, it's, it's very basic. Right, but it's not addressing his issues. It's not, and even the doctor had stated that that medication that they had been had him on previously while he was in the camp was a medication they should not have had him on longer than two years. He's been in the system five years. Okay. And they prolonged well, that. Well we're gonna help you, Francis, with this. So just cause we'll send a letter not only to the uh institution, but we're gonna talk offline on this. I'm gonna get all the information from you. Um and we're gonna actually contact the Bureau of Prisons as well, Washington DC. Uh again a just cause is an advocacy organization that is in consistent pursuit of justice. This type of injustice, we will be a voice for your husband, for you. This is unacceptable. And if nobody I appreciate opens, that. You're very welcome for that. And if nobody opens their mouth to attack this type of injustice, it continues. William, when you hear this, I mean, this is this is heart wrenching. This is you're talking about a family, a, a man. And look, let me make this very clear before I get your comment. We are aware that people do things, people make mistakes, they make bad decisions. A just cause is not against the penalty that you have to go to jail at times, that you may have to go to prison for a decision that you made. We're not against that. We're not against prisons. What we are against is the treatment inmates. People are dying. 
People are being assaulted in county jail. The mentally ill are being beaten and stepped on and mistreated. These are the issues we have. Absolutely. Because that's unacceptable. Well, and you hear this. You hear this constant. There's no concern for their health and well-being. I mean, she's talking about you know treatment for the thyroid. You're talking about something that is very severe here or could potentially be you know life-threatening. And what are they doing? And then on top of that, you know, do they even have people there that can help help this a, a doctor that would even care and have compassion? You know, we've heard that we've we've heard this before, right? And and it's it's amazing that you basically their whole mentality. It, another thing that really really upset me was they talk about you know the shoe, the, the special housing, call it what it is. Stop trying to put these nice labels on. You know the way you treat people, and, right. and you you see what I'm saying. It's it's these sure. kinds of things that is they're trying to put a nice bow and a nice wrapper on this behavior and mentality that they have in these prisons. It's a, it's insane. They try to make it look like they care. They don't care. They're basically doing. They're housing these people. They're treating them bad, and they're justifying themselves and then trying to put this wrapper on it. It's it's yes. it's terrible. No, absolutely right, and. Uh, Francis, I saw something here, uh, and, and we're going to take a quick break. I don't know what your time schedule is this evening. I'd like to bring you back, but we don't want to infringe on your time uh, because we're getting ready to get busy, if you will, in regards to this type of issue with your husband. Uh, I'm telling you, we're getting ready to go all in, uh, not only with you right. others suffering this injustice. There was something you stated uh, in, in a text you sent me, some of the stuff that you said that you were disgusted with in the prison system. You said – let me read this correctly, that inmates were left with PR bonds. PR bonds were done in the middle of the night on bleeding inmates just so the jail would not be held responsible. Now, you're talking about a right. personal cognizance bond. Is that correct? Yes, they have um, what they call, I guess, pre-trial that they work uh-huh. with, that they do the bonds off of the county where the county makes money. Right. And when they realize that an inmate is a medical liability, again, like I said, you know, I'm going in without training. I didn't even receive my official jailer's license before I was forced to resign. But you're taught early on, don't let them die in the facility. So if you see that an inmate is a medical, well, not if you see, but when they see that an inmate is a medical liability, they will call whoever they have to call in the middle of the night to have them released on that PR bond and call the ambulance from the front, but don't let it happen on our facility. So no value for human Uncontrol- life. Right. No life. You know, where's the humanity in that? You know, I'm sorry you don't have medical care, and I'm sorry you started bleeding here, but let's send you out of here now. And it's it's crazy, and of course, you know that's where my panic comes from because it, or I've seen inmates put in the restraint chair where their limbs are, are strained to the chair, and I've seen them taste while they're in this restraint chair. I mean, obviously, they're not a threat anymore when they're in that chair. So and cameras, take- you know, they can say they have they can say they can they have cameras, but cameras only tell the story from one angle. Mm-hmm. Well, if if I'm restrained, Francis, can you come back, or do we need to let you go? Uh, I can come us, back. I can come I'm back. Bring you back. 
And we're going to bring another guest on who's, who's in queue waiting to come on. Kathy Morse is going to be joining the conversation. We're going to take a quick break, folks. This is AJC Radio. Francis Sanchez giving a perspective, a look at what they have done and her experience working in the, in the, in the jail system. But now it's, it's at her front door. Her husband suffering the ramifications of injustice in the whole. We're going to be talking to her a little bit further as we get into the to more discussion. Voices from behind the wall. The horror continues. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States? I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world? The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population, but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm going to give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call 1-855-529-4252. That is a just cause. And we fight for justice. Again, call a just cause today. Don't delay Call one 529 4252 is time, and I say high time, that we take America's incarceration seriously. Won't you join us? Call today. I don't have to tell you about the challenges we face every day. That would be like preaching to the choir. Today you have a chance to face the challenge of your risk for diabetes. My dad had diabetes and one in four U.S. adults are at risk, myself included. If you're older than 45 or African-American, that risk increases. So here's a chance to ask yourself, what can I do? Talk to your doctor about getting screened and know what your options are. Learn more at AskScreenKnow.com. You can tell a lot about someone by what they spend their money on, their priorities, their concerns, and their motives. Big Pharma says their top priority is research and development. They say that prescription drug costs are so high because they spend so much on research. But the simple truth is nine out of the 10 biggest pharma companies spend 50% more on advertising than they do on research and development. It's true. Tens of billions more. The more they spend, the clearer it becomes. Big Pharma's priorities are more ads, more sales, and higher costs to you. It's time for Big Pharma to get their priorities straight. Americans deserve open and honest prescription drug pricing. Let's solve the cost crisis now. Visit CSRXP.org. Did you know 
that over 1.5 million children in America have parents who are incarcerated. These children cope with the pain through drugs, alcohol, anger, and violence. It is so important. So important. It is so important for communities to provide preventative and intervention services. Don't make them do it alone. Become a part of the community. Community. The community. Become a part of the community. He must have thrown a thousand pitches teaching him to hit a home run. Spent countless Saturdays running routes so he could learn to hit an open receiver. Endless afternoons teaching him how to hit the three-pointer. But how much time have you spent teaching him what not to hit? Teaching boys that all violence against women is wrong is one of the most important things a man can do. Learn how to start the conversation at teachearly.org. Brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the Ad Council. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, where tonight we, and we'll continue every Tuesday and Thursday on this program, address the voices from behind the wall of America's prisons and jails across this nation, where people are dying senselessly, people are being abused, medication being refused. I mean, you you can think of whatever abuse you can think of, multiply that a thousand times, and we still haven't begun to touch on the issue of abuse in America's prisons. And I'll tell you what, we're going to expose that here on AJC Radio, the Just Cause organization, as we fight for justice and become a voice for the voiceless. And right now, I'll tell you what, I had an opportunity to talk to Kathy Morrissey, if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, yesterday. And I'll tell you what, this lady has some things to say. Uh, Former inmate at Rikers Island, uh, and inmate detainee, if you will, because they're not actually convicted of any crime. It is a jail system. Uh, I took it as inmate, inmate, but I, I believe it's the proper terminology is detainee at Rikers Island. She's joining us right now. Kathy, are you with us? Yes, I am. Good evening. Good evening to you, Kathy. Thanks so much for taking time tonight and joining us. Sorry for the delay as we have been engrossed in conversation, but your perspective is critically important, uh, especially after talking to you last night. I'm going to give you the floor to introduce yourself to our listeners. We're going to be joined here shortly with, by Natalie Cohen. She was uh uh, addressing some issues uh, last week on this on this very topic, but I want to give you an opportunity uh, to talk about some of the things that you experienced there in Rikers, and we respect you and, and, and appreciate your courage in coming to speak about this very difficult and troubling issue. Um, my name is Kathy Morris. Um, I was formally detained, and yes, detainee is the correct word to use at Rikers because it's not a prison; it's a jail, um, and majority of the people, over 80% of the people held at Rikers are detainees, which means that their cases um, are still working their way through the courts. Uh, The only way you would be sentenced to Rikers is if you got what they call a city sentence, and that's less than a year. Other than that, you receive a state sentence, and you end up in one of the New York State facilities. Um, I was one of those individuals. I received a sentence of four and a half to nine years um, for grand larceny charges, I stole money from my employer. Um, you know, I'm open and, and, and upfront about it. Um, I make no bones about it. Um, no excuses. 
I did what I did. It's over, it's done with, and I've moved on. Um, but what I now do is I go out and speak publicly, and I also write and tweet um, any form of social media about my experiences in an effort to make members of the community aware of what exactly goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, for too long, many people have buried their heads in the sand or have looked the other way. And unfortunately, with what's going on in the United States, as a you know, in the current environment in which we live, incarceration is encroaching on every neighborhood. And it's going to get to the point where every individual is going to know somebody either personally within their family or their household, um, their neighbor, a coworker, a friend who has been directly impacted by incarceration. Um, and that's why the time is right for people to learn about what honestly goes on in correctional facilities. Um, yes. And that's what I do. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I think it's probably best if you just ask me questions instead of me, you know, because I could, I could rattle on all night long. No, um, I, I and, and and we don't want to do that. So, um, yes, I also was in a documentary which I know you screened last night. It's called Rikers in American Jail, um, yeah. and it is available online for people to look at at rikersfilm.org and I encourage people to look at it. No, I'm going to play it. You're going to play a clip? Okay, but what I I stress to people is that Rikers is every jail and prison in the United States. What goes on at Rikers is just not exclusive or isolated at Rikers. Right. No, absolutely right. And, uh, uh, Kathy, we're going to play a, a clip right now from that documentary, uh, Rikers and American Jail, and uh, we're going to play a little bit of that right now. We're going to come back and talk. Uh, also, we're going to bring Natalie Cohen uh, into this conversation as well, and uh, I, I will definitely ask you some questions. And Believe me, you're not talking too much. I think what you have to say is critically important, and we look forward to hearing uh, the things that you have seen. Okay, uh, let's go to the mm-hmm. clip. I'm going to come right back with you. I heard somebody died. He was Dominican, he didn't speak English, and the person told him, the officer told him to do something, gave him an order, but he just stood there and didn't move. But I don't think it was because he was trying to be, you know, rebellious. Just I don't think he understood what, what was said. And they went in the cell and they was beating him with the sticks, right? It was like three of them. And the sticks would miss him, hit the wall, and it would reverberate through my cell. Just like, and you hear, I heard his like cries. And it's crazy because people just came out of their cells and went on with their day. People were like, yo, who got Kool-Aid? Somebody got cigarettes, like nobody missed a step. It was just business as usual after that. I started to feel like an animal. Leave an animal in a cage long enough, when you open the cage door, they won't even come out. If they do come out, they tiptoe around and they go right back. 
and I felt like that, and I wanted to break that that cycle. I wanted to break out of that. It was like bondage to me. It was like slavery. I remember there was a time where um, I actually contemplated suicide. Um, and I remember my mom coming to see me and she grabbed me by my shoulders. And she told me, man, she said, if you don't give up on yourself, I'm never gonna give up on you. She said, do what you have to do to survive and make it home in one piece. And that voice right there, she says, please, she begged me. She says, come home because I'm not going to be able to take it if they take you away from me. You take your life. And I kept hearing that small, still voice in, um, in my mind while I was in the bank. And little did I know that, you know, it was God that, that kept talking to her and talking to me not to give up. Unless you've experienced coming home from jail or prison, you'll never know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to go looking for a job and everywhere you turn, every door you open, they look at you differently and say no to you. They don't know what it's like to be hungry and have no food on the table for your family, but you out there struggling, looking for a job. I've always said, you know, it's great. Everybody's talking about these inmates that are being released, but what are you putting in place for them to come home to? Well, there you have it. Uh, Heart-wrenching information there. Tragic. Let me share this very quickly, and I'm going to come back to uh, uh, Kathy for her thoughts. We're going to bring Natalie Cohen in in this conversation. Let me read this very very quickly. Prison guards taunted suicidal inmate into killing himself. Lawsuit uh, being done. This is July 28, 2018. This just happened. Two upstate prison prison guards allegedly taunted a suicidal Bronx man for hours before he hanged himself in his cell, according to a lawsuit. Lonnie Hamilton suffered malicious, sadistic, degrading, premeditated abuse from state correction officers Joseph Mead and Alfred Zena, his father claims in a Bronx Supreme Court documents. Hamilton, who was serving two to six years for robbery, used a strip of torn bedsheet to hang himself from a ceiling vent on March 18, 2016. Two days earlier, Hamilton had been on suicide watch when Meade and Zena started their March 18th tour. They denied Hamilton time outside in the recreation yard, refused to give him food, blasted the air conditioning, and sprayed him with a fire extinguisher through the cell door. According to court papers, I thought thought you're going to kill yourself. You should just kill yourself. You don't need food. You're going to be dead anyway. Do us a favor and kill yourself, the officers allegedly told Hamilton when they discovered Hamilton's body hanging from the ceiling. The pair allegedly ignored it for 25 minutes and refused to call for help in an effort to avoid paperwork, the elder Hamilton charges. The officers were reached out to but did not return any calls. That is, I don't don't even know what to say to that. These are the people, whether it's the state prison system, the Bureau of Prisons, 
What is going on with your hiring process? These are, you're calling inmates and detainees animals. When correctional officers and deputies are the most barbaric group of individuals, animals do not do this to each other. And you call the inmates animals? You call detainees, those in jail, animals? While you taught a man to kill himself, you take his food from him, you spray him with an extinguisher and taunt him that prompts this man to hang himself from his bed with a bed sheet. That is uncomprehendable to me. We got it all wrong. The animals are those that abuse these men and women in our, in our correctional facilities. Those are the animals. No heart, no feeling, nothing but killers, murderers, rapists. They have become what they have accused inmates and detainees to be. Then where's their cell? Where, where, are they, where are their cells? Why are they not locked up in their cells for the actions that they do, is my question. Kathy, thanks for staying with us. We're going to bring Natalie Cohen on the line. And, and Kathy, I'm going to get your story. I'm going to ask you a few questions. I want to bring Natalie in in this conversation. Natalie, are you with us? Yes, I am. How are you? How are you? Thank you so much for calling back in tonight. And, uh we're going to get your, I want to get your perspective on what you've heard thus far tonight. I'll tell you what, this is an endless story of abuse in this country. And uh, I'd like to talk to Kathy really quick, Natalie, but we're going to come back to you and thank you again for joining us. I want to get your perspective of what you've heard and what you're going to hear from Kathy sure. right now. And uh, Kathy, I, I wanted to ask you a question uh, in regards to uh, some of the stuff you had seen in Rikers that uh, – that you wanted to share with our listeners, the uh, sexual assaults, the, the other things that were just gross and just really, really bad that really had an impact on you. I know when we had talked the other day that the story of what, of what you've seen, that's not something that goes away. That remains with you probably for the remainder of your life. Uh, but you have become that a boy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about some of the, just give us a, an example, some of the things that you have seen that really stuck with you that were, that were horrific there that a lot of people just don't know about. Um, I have to be honest with you that um, just walking through the gates of Rikers and hearing this, because nobody talks, they all scream at one another, and you become traumatized. And the entire experience experience is extremely traumatizing. I have PTSD from that experience, um, and that's something that will stay with me for the rest of my life. I have suppressed a lot of things, um, you know, and locked them away, and that's the self-protection type of thing, and they do come out. Um, There was one instance where there were two girls who started a fight, and um, the one girl had the other girl by her hair, and she had her stuck between the bed frame, which was screwed into the floor, and the floor, 
And she kept banging her head between the bed frame and the floor back and forth. And you could hear her skin ripping. You could smell the blood that rusty smell. It was that rusty smell. And there was nothing that any of us could do. You know, we just had to stand there and watch hopeless. And that's not, that's not a human, you know, a typical human reaction. A typical human reaction is to want to go in and stop it. But if we went in and interceded, we would get a ticket. So you had to stand there and you were totally helpless. And the guards just stood there and let it go on until they both had had enough. A question. I want to make sure I heard you correctly. If you went to to help, you were punished by the institution? Yes. If If you went to help and break up the fight, you were charged with being part of that fight. So you had to stand there and watch it. And the guards are standing there watching it and not doing it. The guards stood there and watched it and did not intervene. And when the one girl was being escorted from the unit to medical to be looked at, she was actually jumped in the hallway by the person she had been fighting with, her girlfriend, and her whole entire face was scraped up. Now, when she was being escorted in the hallway, she was handcuffed and shackled, and she had two guards who were escorting her, and they did and, nothing either. So you have okay. two guards, you have two guards mm-hmm. escorting yep. her. The lady is chained. She is restrained. Mm-hmm. And jumped while in the presence of the escorting guards to yes. medical, did nothing. Yes. Did absolutely nothing. It's to me. It's Rikers. It's it's a culture of violence, brutality, and abuse. And the thing is, is that until we address that, and it's 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 at the hands of correctional officers, and until we address that, nothing is going to ever change. Um, you know, the president of their union did 10 years working in solitary confinement. So his attitude is that all inmates are animals and deserve to be caged. He's got that, you know, it's that old school mentality. And it passes on down through the ranks. Yep. And until you get rid of that, nothing is going to change. So as he said, you know, when the fish smells, you cut off the head. You start at the head first and work your way down. So you cut off the head. But it's ingrained in these officers. And what is being suggested as part of, you know, closing Rikers and opening up smaller community-based facilities is to revamp the officer's training and to have follow-up training. But not only that, to use a better screening process in who they recruit and hire. Because that is a problem as well. Right. You've got officers. You've got officers who live in the same neighborhood as the detainees, who hang out on the same street corners as the detainees, and they turn around. They say to the detainees, "Hey, look, this is my house now. These are my rules, and you're going to play by my rules now." Oh boy. 
Some this of them is... are members of the same gangs as the detainees. Guards. So it's, yeah. So you've got this culture that's in there, abusive, and it's, it's brutal, and it's extremely violent. Um, and there's nothing that's breaking it up. It's totally out of control, even with the population of detainees now down to 8,000, it still goes on. Okay? And even with New York City eliminating solitary confinement for adolescents and young adults on Rikers, they still find ways to put them in solitary. What happened, I'll give you a recent I'm not going to use names or anything, but there was an instance where one of the young adults threw a cup of urine in an officer's face, and it was probably because the officer was mouthing off at the kid or something, and he just had enough, and that was the only way to get his frustration out because he was behind bars. So he threw a cup of urine in the officer's face. It's not an uncommon occurrence. We know it goes on all the time. Right. The... Union has now gone to New York City Board of Corrections and has asked them for the safety and security of the other detainees to ship this young man up to Albany County where they know he'll be put in solitary confinement because Rikers has eliminated it for his age group. But it sounds like to me... So one has to say how many requests does... COBA, which is the officer's union, make of the Board of Corrections to send these kids to facilities they know that has solitary confinement. I mean... When when in reality, it was the officer who got the urine thrown in his face who was actually the agitator. Exactly. Exactly. Okay? But yet, this is what, you know... There's instances... And they, the officers have been tried and found guilty where because they didn't like the way a detainee looked at them. Or one instance was a captain who felt that a detainee disrespected him and said to the officers, go in and take care of them. And they went to trial. They lost their all-doing time. Hmm. It goes on. It's, it's, oh. it's that culture that is inbred in there. And some facilities are worse than others. Let me get um, Natalie. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Kathy. Okay. Uh, no, go, go ahead, ahead, Natalie. No, it's you know, and and this is where you have to look and say, what do we do to to change it? And that's where this comes in about the hiring practices and the training and that. And another thing that they need to do is they also need to provide mental health and counseling services for these officers. The officers are going to be reluctant to partake in it because they stand not only the stigma that they're participating in, in some type of mental health counseling, but also the potential of losing their weapon. They lose their gun. You are know, there... that macho thing. Sure. But really, in reality, they really need that mental health counseling. Sure they do. Because when you stand and... back while people are beating them, beating up each other, uh, prison has a mentality. Let me really quick before I go further than that, Kathy, and we're definitely coming back. To, I want to talk to you further. Natalie Cohen, are you there? Yes. Natalie, when you hear, how, yeah. how are you? I'm doing fine. Thanks for joining us tonight. I got to hear from you because this is outrageous. We have right. a jail system 
Rikers Island, where mm-hmm. you have Kathy who has observed. And thank God that Kathy felt enough passion to say, I will advocate. I will tell the story of what I have seen. Thank God for that. Because mm-hmm. she's now a voice for the voiceless. As we all are in this fight for justice, the voices for those behind the wall. What are your thoughts when you hear this, that if I step in to help somebody that's getting beaten sometimes to death, if I step in as a human being and say we have to stop, because I'm going to tell you right now, in, in prison and county jail, if you step in and stop something, you can save a life. Uh, and it, the, the stepping in and stopping a situation is in numbers. But in Rikers, from what Kathy just explained to us, I am punished for trying to intercede and to help, and I'm given a citation. Right. Uh, and I'm, I'm not the in the fight. It's the same thing in CDC. Yes. Go ahead and tell it's, us what you thought. It's the same thing with the Texas prison system, sadly. Um, and I think some of that has to do with trying to keep the fight contained to the two fighters because the more people you add in the fight, the bigger it's going to be. So I can kind of maybe – understand it a little bit why they don't want other uh, inmates detainees offenders whatever you want to call them to get themselves involved because then it can become a potential riot um uh disciplinary cases or they get tickets or you know lost privileges or anything like that to trying to help um and if it were me i would you know would want to jump in and help as well I, I, I don't know. I, the only thing that I can think of is it being a safety precaution. That's the only reason why I feel that they would have that rule in place. I don't really, I can understand it, but I don't really agree with it. Ask me a question then. And I, I understand that. But if the depth, if the guards did their job, nobody has to step in. It is right. the, it's the responsibility of the guard. The correctional right. officer immediately, I can tell you, doing my wrongful stay in prison for my wrongful conviction, I'm going to tell you what, if they smell the fight, at least at the prisons I was, I'm going to tell you, everybody was hitting the floor because pepper spray was being sprayed, and we had so many officers coming in at oh, one yeah. time to break. Mm-hmm. So, you, so why in the world would Rikers and those officers stand back until, you, until these two women, I mean, Ultimately, but can kill themselves, and then she's chained and shackled, going to medical, and you allow this this detainee to be jumped while you stand there, and you are the two escorting officers taking her to medical. Your job is to protect and to keep the place safe. This is this is where my uh, anger comes in. This is where my frustration comes in. Okay, if you think there's a, a, a riot that's going to break out, why don't you do your job? And if you can't do that job, you shouldn't be in it. And when Kathy says to me, they're peeling the skin. You can hear the skin being torn off. You can smell the blood. You know, she smelled that the officers did. It's uncomprehendable to me. But you're still short. Kathy? Yes. Um, One of the reasons is they don't want to do the paperwork, I have to tell you. Or they'll get annoyed 
that if the fight or whatever happens and it's towards the end of their shift, because now they have to stay later to do paperwork. And they will come out and say to you, They'll come out and say to you, I don't want to do this paperwork. Now I got to do it. So, you know, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. But then again, if they were doing their job and they, they saw, because you can tell when there's going to be a fight, the girls put their hair up in ponytails and they put on certain shoes. I mean, there's this whole procedure that they go through and you sense it. You go in and you diffuse that situation. You don't keep sitting there flipping through the newspaper. Yes. That is, we got a problem. We have, yeah. and listen, and that's one location. The abuse yeah. is everywhere. And then Yeah, that's what I said. Yep. We talked about Khalif Browder yesterday, Kathy. Yes, we did. And... My heart breaks every time I talk about this young man. He was sent to Rikers, mm-hmm. never charged. You said you yep. saw something there. I, th- I think the terminology was hogtied. Is that correct? Yes. Talk they hogtied him. Um, what they do is they um, will handcuff them and shackle their feet, usually with those zip-tied cords. And then they'll connect them to this long pole so that they're literally hanging down from this pole and they carry the pole. And it's literally hogtied like they're going to, and I mean, I hate to talk this way because it's not, but it's like they're going to put them on the spit to roast them. And that's how they carry them. Or they'll, they'll be on the floor and they'll all just go in. The officers will all just go in and start kicking at them. How... How are you supposed to defend yourself when you are tied up, when you are handcuffed? How are you? You can't even put your arms over your face to protect your face. We got a caller, Kathy Holt, that thought. Cliff, who do we Mm -hmm. have? We have uh, Pastor Banks who would like to make a comment about uh, what she's hearing tonight. Uh, Pastor Banks, you're live. Go ahead. Yes, thanks for taking my call. I, I'm listening to this show tonight, and I, I've heard on more than one occasion that they need to train the officers in mental health. The problem with that, we've got enough mental health institutions throughout this entire country. Where the problem is, why do they keep putting men, mentally ill people in prisons when they should be put in mental institutions. Those guards don't care about whether whether you uh, have a mental problem or not. And a lot of this that's been said that, um, okay, we need to train them. You know what? It's something about just plain common decency that says, you know, I am not going to kill another man. I am not going to do it. These these people, if you train them, they still would do exactly what they're doing right now because that's who they are. But why not take our mentally ill people in this country and put them in mental institutions there everywhere? Why in the world would we why why in the world would we put them in prison and know that 
you can abuse a mentally ill person much faster due to the fact they don't even understand what all is going on around them. So I think where the main problem is, quit sending our mental uh, people into prison and put them in mental institutions where they can be helped. Those people there are already trained. And because you can train these guards, these guards are, are brutal. They don't really care about anybody. So you could train them all day long. If they want to close the, those doors and beat and abuse people, they're going to continue to do it. That's who they are. But I think the uh, the answer to that, uh, to keep our, our mentally handicapped people from being abused to this degree, uh, even if you're not mentally uh, 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 incompetent, Still, all this type of abuse shouldn't be going on in a prison, but at least let's help the people that can't help themselves, which is the mentally retarded people. I just had to say that because I keep hearing them. we need to train our guards. Those guards don't care about being trained. These guards are people who don't care about anybody. Train all day long. They're going to go back behind those doors and do exactly what they want to do. That evil and horrible hatred. It's in their heart, and any amount of training you give them is not going to change their heart. That's who they are. So we need to deal with the fact, quit hiring people uh, who are guards that's, uh, without doing background checks on them because they just come in here and do what they want to do, and nobody holds them accountable. Well, if I can kill somebody every day and nobody says something about it, why should I stop? Because you're a ruthless person. So. Yeah. I hope that something will happen with this situation, that we will definitely uh, look out for the mentally retarded people who cannot look out for themselves and say, uh, no, it's against the law to put a mental person in prison who don't even understand and know all that's going on around them. Don't put them there. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Thank you. Can I just address that um, comment? Absolutely. What happened was back in the 80s, I guess it was, they lost a lot of funding for these mental health facilities, and they shut down. So what happened was the people who were, you know, hospitalized in those facilities were put out on the streets. They promised to have set up community day programs and whatnot for them, but they never happened. So what happens is, they're getting picked up for the pettiest of things, um, urinating in public, jumping a turnstile, things like that. And over 40% of the individuals who are detained on Rikers have a diagnosed mental health problem because there's no place else for them to go. Right. So and, if, you, and... if, if we establish community-based mental health programs for them, that's where they could go. We, we wouldn't have that revolving door that Rikers has become for a lot of these people. You wouldn't and, have them in the facilities. You would have them in a place where they can get the appropriate treatment, where they can have their medication monitored, and they wouldn't, be, you know, they wouldn't be in there. And, yeah, and this is a problem that is not only isolated to New York. This goes on everywhere across the country. Right, These right. budget cuts impacted everybody. 
And that's what no. happened. And you ha- that, that's where the majority of the homeless people come from because they have nowhere to go. And the, and the issue is, and Cliff, I want to get to your point really quick. Go ahead, Cliff. No, I was going to say what the problem is, you know, they took away the funding from the, uh, from the hospital institutions and, you know, the community centers that had people who were there to, uh, who were trained, uh, you know, in mental um, health facilities. The issue is, there, it's not that the funding's not there. The U.S. Bureau of Prisons gets however many billions of dollars per year. They waste a billion dollars on prison camps, which are, I mean, you could put those people on house arrest, put them on an ankle bracelet, and they basically have the same amount of supervision. You could save a billion dollars in the prison system there. The, the problem is that the departments of corrections and the prison systems do not want to let go of the funding that they're getting to keep those beds filled. And then, so, so there's no push for, for the, uh, the mental health institutions instead of sending people to jail. And, and you have the guards who say, well, Hey, you know, if we basically, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, try our best to kill them off while they're in there, uh, you know, they have the feeling that, you know, nobody really cares, but it's, it's not because there's not funding. The funding is there, the prisons, the jails, the halfway houses, uh, all of these correctional institutions want to hold on to that funding that they're getting because to them, each bed that's filled is a, yeah, is another check from their, from their government, either federal or state. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. And I agree because it's tragic, uh, the, the appropriation of funds, uh, like, you, like you said, uh, uh, Kathy, if these folks are on the streets, they're picking them up for next to nothing. What they don't understand is that putting, me in the, putting these folks in jail, uh, I, this is what I learned in the, in the system as being part of this system, uh, is that a judge will ask you when you come before his court in preliminary hearings, were you culpable? when you committed a crime number one the mentally challenged cannot be culpable they can't be and that's something that and and i think what you say is tragic that and as cliff uh, pointed out so so eloquently is that this is big business in this country now prisons jails this is big money and whenever you have big money, you got greed. And when you have greed, there are no parameters or lines that are not crossed. Right. And I think that's a they, major problem. They lose all sight of every, you know, Absolutely. It's, it's just greed. And they lose all sight of what it is. And, and the other issue is, you know, with the bail reform that's going on, you've got these people who are, who are homeless who are coming up. And with these risk assessments, and they're saying, okay, well, do you have a family member or a community, you know, do you have someplace you can go? And they say no, and that knocks them down in their ranking in these risk assessments. You know, what what is your support like out in the community? Do you have family support? Do you have friends who support you? And, you know, they honestly have to say no, and and that's not helping them. No, it's not helping at Um, all. I think that's why everything has to be revamped. Completely. I'm talking like torn down and the new foundation built. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how it is. It, it's, it's, it, it is a tangled web, if you will, that we find ourselves in. How do we get through this maze? Because it is so spiraled out of control now. 
how do we deal with it? I'm going to play a clip real quick. Is, is Natalie still with us? Natalie, you there? Yep. Okay, I'm going to play a clip really quick. I want you folks to hear it. Kathy, I want you and Natalie, I want to get your thoughts on this. Craziest prison abuse stories recorded. Let's do that for Welcome to World's Best Videos. We've compiled the list of the craziest prison abuse stories. Let's get into it. Psychological Abuse Richard Mayer was locked up in Dade Correctional Institute Mental Health of September 2013. Mayer hung himself. In his suicide note, he accused prison guards of punishing inmates with starvation. The officers also forced them to fight and place bets on the winners. Mayer also claimed sexual assaults by prison employees. He said that one asked Mara to strip out of his clothes and touch himself in exchange for cigarettes. Mara had been raped in the past. In his suicide note, he claimed that the officer also knew it. Mara suggested that he was in the mental health unit to get help for his depression and suicidal tendencies, all of which were worsened by recent sexual assault. He was slammed against the wall when he refused to get advice from the lieutenant, then told to keep his mouth shut ignoring cries for help. Rick Martin was incarcerated in Florida's Santa Rosa Correctional Institution. After a few hours, prison workers forced Martin into a cell with an inmate known for getting into violent altercations with others. He was found dead. In March 2012, guards had found Rick beaten to a pulp. He was found with the skull smashed and his body was black and blue. Apparently, he had been restrained and strangled with ribbons of torn fabric. The scrubs that Martin wore were soaked in blood and pulled over his head, maybe indicating rape. He begged to be moved to a new cell out of fear for his life. There were witnesses that the report hearing the screams and the thuds. There's evidence that the inmate Sean Jigaman Rogers had used a sock stuffed with batteries. The same witnesses recall that Rogers had jumped on Martin's head multiple times, smashing it into the concrete floor. Despite their repeated cries for help, the prison staff failed to respond until it was too late. Inmates pleaded with officers to assist Martin during the attack. Video taking during the incident shows a guard glancing inside the cell during the attack, but ultimately refusing to come to Martin's aid. Scalding showers. It all started with a shower. In 2012, Darren Rainey, who was schizophrenic, had defecated in the cell. Harriet Krakowski, a former counselor at the Dade Correctional Institution, asked the guard how they were going to deal with Rainey. The guard calmly assured her, oh, don't worry, we'll put him in the shower. The counselor thought it was a good thing. Krakowski learned that the guards had locked Rainey in a small stall and showered him by force with a hose. Only the guards, not Rainey, were able to control the water temperature. Prison authorities boiled Darren Rainey to death when they were forced him to take a two-hour shower and scalding water that was 82 degrees Celsius. The water was hot enough to cook ramen soup. Due to the shower was so small, there was nothing Rainey could do to escape the scalding water. Inmates reported that Rainey had screamed for help during the two-hour torture session, serving a sentence for cocaine possession and nonviolent offense was cooked like lobster. According to Rainey's fellow inmates, Rainey was not the first person who had been locked in the shower under these conditions. However, he was the first to die. There you have it. Tragic, inhumane, unacceptable. 
someone was to be held accountable for these tragedies. Let me share this with you. Inmate died so slowly, one mile from a hospital. I don't have time for him, jail nurse said. Carmen Brannon, a politically connected former nurse at the George County Jail, will spend the next 15 years in prison for killing an inmate who went seven days without insulin while under her care. William Joel Dixon, 28, was a self-described meth addict, but District Attorney Tony Lawrence said he did not deserve to die. Nobody disputed that Dixon was throwing up, slurring his speech, and unable to eat in the days before he died. When she testified, Brennan said she believed he was suffering from methamphetamine withdrawal. The day before he died, he was so weak and his speech so slurred that jealous could only make out two words. Help me. Assistant District Attorney Sherry Wade told the jury during closing arguments. Two words, he stated. Help me. And they let him die. Natalie and Kathy, I'm going to get your thoughts on that. What are your thoughts of what you're hearing tonight? Natalie, we've talked. You've shared your position. Talk to us. Well, I mean, the thing with the examples today, they're heartbreaking as all the examples. But the thing is, we can share examples all day, but we really need to come up with ways to fix these problems or we're just going to be crying wolf all day. So, And I'm not trying to be negative or bitchy or anything like that because these are issues and these issues need to to be heard but part of the conversation also needs to be how do we fix these problems and you know there's the the thing with with Rikers I believe they actually passed the closing of Rikers which on one hand is a good thing but on the other hand it might not be such a great thing because now you're going to overcrowd other city jail facilities and then the issues are just going to follow whoever is just going to follow them to the city the smaller jails so, yes, closing Rikers might be a a small step, but in the long run, it's just going to create more of the same mini Rikers all over the state. And so that's that's one thing. The thing with the with the military sergeant in in Texas, my opinion, it has nothing to do with the military. It has everything to do with El Paso County Jail. They are the ones responsible for this man's death, not the military. They need to take accountability for it. They need to fix themselves, and they need to pay some sort of restitution to his family. Because I I was in the military for a brief period of time. If I went out and I committed a crime off post as a civilian, I have to face civilian lawsuits. Uh, Not lawsuits, but I have to to face civilian court because that's what that is. You can't – most – a lot of the times – if you do commit a crime uh, and you're in the military, the crime is um, diverted to uh, the Uniform Code of Military Justice and you face UCMJ for that. But right. like I said, if you commit a crime outside of your of your base post, you have to deal with what you did outside of your base post. So right. that, I don't know if I fully agree with, with that, but I mean... Well... It's, it is what it is. Somebody no, and I needs understand. to take accountable for this man's death. He didn't deserve to die at all, especially if he was a self-surrender for a DD, DWI, DUI, I think it was, something like that. Right. Two-day sentence over the weekend. 
no, no. that procedure that you that they said was standard procedure with sedating someone multiple times, that's weird. And that's really dangerous. And I feel like that standard procedure needs to be shut down. And we're going to talk about that. Kathy, Natalie, Yes. Again, not enough time in one show to get it done. We invite you guys to come back. Kathy, you have a lot to say. Natalie definitely has a lot to say. We're going to pick up that conversation on Thursday. Uh, Kathy, we'd love to have you back. If your schedule permits it, I'll be in touch with you offline. Uh, Natalie, yes, as I, always. I do want to come back. Yeah, I am going to be available, and I welcome the opportunity to continue the conversation. We're going to do just that. Folks, Natalie, Kathy, to everybody that joined us, uh, Danita, uh, Robinson, Scott, thank, thank you as well for joining this show. Thursday, we pick it up again. Natalie, we hope to see you, uh, hear from you, and, and Kathy, we look forward to having you back on. This conversation is endless. And how do we get solutions? If we don't get Congress to move in prison reform, if we don't get this nation to cry out against this injustice, it will never get better. We'll talk about that on Thursday. Folks, until next time, good night, America. You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we can walk it out. Move mountains, we can walk it out and move mountains. And I'll rise up, I'll rise like the day, I'll rise up, I'll rise unafraid, I'll rise up, and I'll do it a thousand times again. And I'll rise up, I'll like the waves, I'll rise up, in spite of the ache, I'll rise up, and I'll Silence is quiet, and it feels like it's getting hard to breathe. And I know you feel like dying, but I promise we would take the world to its feet. Move, I won't take, bring it to its feet.
for that we have each other.